Great to be with you. I'd love for you, if you have your Bibles, please, to turn to Luke chapter 5. Um, while you're turning there, I'll just keep talking a little bit so you can get used to my accent. Because um, I come from London, and people sometimes don't quite understand everything I say. In fact, even on this trip, it's amazing how many words um, we, we use that are, sound slightly different. So it's important for me to keep talking like this so you can get used to my sound. Um, it is a sobering thing for you to realize that actually I don't have an accent. I have the original English, and you, you guys, you're the ones who, who will have the accents. Uh, verse 1. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, Jesus was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, and he saw two boats by the lake, But the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land. And he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep, let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night. And we took nothing, but at your word, I'll let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. To be quite honest with you, there is so much in those 11 verses. It's a case case of what do you leave out rather than what do you put in. It's so rich. There's so much going on. It's so busy. There are so many lessons to be learned. There's so many things that Jesus says. There's so many lives being radically changed just in the space of one event. Um, and, and, and although this morning I, I want to unpackage a, a number of main points from this passage, I, I want to step back from it because actually this, there's an overall message going on here that is relevant to everybody in this room. And it's a message that's repeated in other gospel accounts of other events that happen. And the message is basically this. Jesus is stepping into the lives of ordinary fishermen and bringing total transformation. But the message is also, not only is he stepping into the stories of people, but the end result is that he is inviting them to step into his story. Why is this so important? Well, it's important because If you're a Christian here today, you know there was a moment when Jesus broke into your life. And maybe you're a Christian who's also knowing the transforming power of what that really looks like. 
And so it's really wonderful that Jesus breaks into our lives. You may have been living a fairly exciting life before you were a Christian. People are allowed to live exciting lives before they're Christians. But I guarantee this, now that Jesus is in your life, it's far, far more exciting than anything you knew before. Or if you're like me and the vast majority of people on this planet, your life was pretty mundane, really, before Jesus broke into your life. I mean, you did the same thing most days and most weeks and most years and nothing particularly extraordinary. Most people in the, the world are like that. So when Jesus comes into your life, it's wonderful news because what is pretty bland and mundane suddenly becomes full of color and suddenly becomes full of purpose and meaning. And it's wonderful that part of the story... And so these disciples, it's like Jesus bursting onto the scene, breaking into their lives and into the stories that they have. But the point I want to make is that this is not the end for these disciples. Becoming a Christian is not about Jesus just coming into your life and transforming you. It's about taking on a journey whereby you realize this isn't all about me, it's all about him. Christianity is not about me being changed it's about me being a follower of Jesus it's not actually about my story it's all about his story Uh, we evangelicals live in a kind of strange world where we're we're trying to preach the gospel to people and I totally get am I talking too fast or can you still understand me okay so I, I totally get that that when we have evangelistic meetings we invite people to give their testimony and we invite the people who have the juiciest testimonies to stand up because they're the most interesting you know the kind of thing I mean you know I used to be a drug addict and I used to be um, into drugs and I used to hang out with women and then when I was five I started to notice (laughs) that other things were happening in my life and we all sit there and we go oh my goodness what an amazing testimony and it even sometimes goes like this and then Jesus came into my life and since then, I have been this, and I have been that. And, and I get why we do that. But it's not really the true story. It's only by the grace of God that my life has been changed. It's only by the sovereign intervention of God into my life and pouring his grace. By grace, we have been saved. I don't get to give much to this. Have you noticed? I mean, what do I give? Well, the Bible says I was dead in my sins. Dead people don't do a lot. Have you noticed? I mean, if you're dead, you're pretty dead. You can't do much about... But God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive. I didn't do that. He did that. You are allowed to say hallelujah. This is America. It's not England. You are allowed (laughs) to respond accordingly. There we go. But when we settle into this kind of terminology, we have to understand that he steps into my story so that I will step into his. He breaks into my life so I can live for him. This is about that verse 11. And when they brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. You can track it in this verse with Peter himself. First of all, he's a bit cynical. What is he saying in verse uh, 5? Well, master... (laughs) We toiled all night. It's kind of like, really? He's, he's, he's intrigued by Jesus. He's watching Jesus. But in reality, you know, he's just the kind of, he's just a man. He's just like everybody else. And then the miracle happens. 
And he realizes, revelation, this isn't a man, this is the son of God. That's why he says, I'm unclean, and he falls down, I'm a sinner, and says, you are the Lord. And so he goes from intrigue and cynicism to transformation of his life. But it doesn't end there. It then goes on to Jesus says, right, from now on you'll stop fishing. Now on you're going to be fishers of men. And they left everything because he was the Lord and followed him. In fact, if you're very clever and you look at this passage of scripture, you'll notice in verse 5 he says, Master, which is a kind of rabbinic honoring. There were lots of rabbinic teachers and masters. He ends up by saying, Lord. So in other words, this is not about Simon Peter. This is actually about Simon Peter's transformation and being a follower of Jesus. So where are you today? What part of the journey are you on? Are you someone here today who's not yet a Christian? Are you someone who's a churchgoer, but you've never encountered... Jesus has never really burst into your life. You just sing the songs and you kind of know the deal, but he's never been real to you. We want you to know this morning that he can break into your life today and transform your life utterly. Or are you one of these people that's had that experience and you're now going through the process of transformation? The gospel doesn't just save us, it utterly transforms us. It has the power to transform every part of your life. You may be on that kind of journey. Or maybe you're saying, here's my testimony, Jesus has broken into my life and I'm a completely different person to what I used to be. And it's a work in progress and he's still working on me. But I know that's happening. Or can I take you further? Is the journey still centered upon you? Is the journey still essentially about you? Have you come to that place where it's no longer about you? I've been crucified with Christ. I no longer live. It's all about him and living for him. And the Western Christian world needs to understand this is the gospel. If we could have churches in the Western world full of individuals who were not just Christians but followers of Jesus. Do you get the difference between those two things? See, where I come from in my country, if I say Christian to people, they immediately have in their minds all sorts of things about me, and they're pretty negative. I talk to people more about, I'm a follower of Jesus, because actually it's not about me, it's pointing everybody to him who is the one whom we're following. I just feel, even as I'm speaking, I just feel there are some people here today for whom this is new, We live in a consumerist world. So I've accepted Jesus into my heart because I'm hoping he's going to do something for me. Sorry I'm laboring this, but I I think I'm meant to. So essentially I got into the Christian thing because I was in a mess and I needed to be cleaned up. So therefore I'm very grateful, but it's still about consumerism. What can I get out of Christianity? And we all have to come to a place where we realize it's not what we get out of Christianity. It's about him and how we live our lives for his glory. And I don't know whether you've ever, some of you, come to that place. And some of the reasons that we get disappointed with our Christian life is it's not working out the way we hoped it would. And I'm not getting everything that I hoped I bought into. Forget it. Listen, it's not about you. It's just, it's just amazing that you even get to the party. And then it's all about him and his life and living for his glory. I think you've got the message. So three things quickly I want to bring out of this passage. And the great joy, so I'm told, about the 11 o'clock meeting is it, ha- it has no end. So I've had to be very limited. In t- oh, is that not right? Okay. I shall be very disciplined. 
I think the first thing we get out of this passage is this, the huge challenge of faith. It it just comes right out at you. And so look at verses 4 and 5 with me. Jesus says to Peter, put out into the deep and let down your nets. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing but at your word. The NIV translation, which I really like, says, but because you said so, we'll let down our nets. So that you've got to understand what's going on in this passage. You've got to try to get into the Gospels. It's good to get into the Gospels. You've got to understand that these guys are fishermen, right? Have you got that? And they, have, they know the lake. They know every part of the lake. They spend every day of their lives in the lake. They are fishermen. So when Jesus says, go out into the deep, go back to the same place, they say, we've toiled all night, there are no fish. What you're asking us to do is crazy. And you could just imagine, that they, they, I, I just imagine, so they put the sails up, and they kind of help row the boats, the boat out to the deep. And I just can imagine the conversation they're having with one another. Why are we doing this? We were up. Why are we going back to the same pipe? Well, because that guy over there said, if we go back there, we'll put down our nets. And Yeah, but we've toiled all night. We know this lake. Watch my lips. There are no fish. And I'm sure one of them said, well, he seems to be quite a nice guy. So just to keep him happy, we'll, we'll, we'll go out there. We'll let down our nets and we'll show him, Jesus, there aren't. Any nets. By the way, our job in life is to be fishermen. What's yours, Jesus? I'm a carpenter. Right, I thought so. Anyway, <laughs> I mean, we're professional. We do this for a living. Who are you? And so you can imagine this kind of conversation going on amongst themselves, back to the same area. And then Peter says this amazing word, but at your word, because you say so. And here we see that moment of faith. And you have to understand, this is not the first time Peter's met Jesus. He's been watching him. In John's account, Peter is there at the wedding of Cana when Jesus turned water into wine. So he's thinking, this guy's turned water into wine. Luke chapter 4, just a few verses before the ones we read, Peter's mother-in-law gets sick. And he invites Jesus into the house and Jesus prays for his mother-in-law and she gets raised up. And he's probably thinking, my goodness, even my mother-in-law got healed and raised up. I mean, who wants their mother-in-laws? Anyway, he's just going through this thing. God bless all mother-in-laws. But it's like, even my mother-in-law got healed by Jesus. So he's intrigued. He's kind of like, whoa, this guy can do stuff. Maybe, just maybe. But he's, he's looking at Jesus and he's saying, because you say so, at your word, we will let down the nets. You see, faith is about the one who spoke something. It's not even about what's said, it's about the one who said it. And faith arises when we know the one who said it. Jesus said, I will build my church in the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Jesus said, go out. What's the promise here? A catch. Go out and you'll get a catch. 
So the deal is this. Promises are received by faith. But it's actually the one who makes the promise that causes faith to rise in our hearts. He said he would build his church. Here's the question. Can he do it? Do you know what the answer is? The answer is yes. Why? Because Jesus has risen from the dead. He's ascended on high. He's at the right hand of the Father. He can, he's above all principalities and powers and every name that he... What he says he can do today, 2017. Yeah. Because he's spoken the words. So I've come to the conclusion that what Jesus has said, can he do this? Yes. Here's another question. Will he? Well, the answer is yes. Do you know why? Because he's a faithful God. And there's nothing that he ever says or promises that will not come to pass. He never breaks a promise. Now, the disciples don't really know Jesus yet as they are about to know him, but they're going through that kind of thing. So if I made you a promise today, now, you would look at me, wouldn't you? Some of you would look at me and say, well, I don't know. I don't really know you. You speak with a funny accent. You come from a long way away. You're going to leave this afternoon, and I don't know whether... I'm not sure you've got the power to do what you said. Or some of you might look at the color of my hair, and you might say, well, you look kind of old, and maybe you'll even forget about the promise by the end of the sermon that you made, because (laughs) your mind is a bit forgetful, and... That's wise, actually, to look at the person who makes the promise and to consider whether you think they're able to do it. And when it comes to Jesus, and can I just say this, with every promise that's ever been made in the Word of God, all of which are yes and amen in Jesus, that every promise that God has made, he has the power to do, and he will do them because he is faithful. And faith comes on, on the basis of this wonderful little verse. And it would be worth you meditating on this, this week, if you like, because you said so. And the other thing, very quickly to draw out from this, is that when a promise is made, have you, often, have you noticed there's often a delay? If, you're ever, if you've been a Christian long enough, you'll know this is true. That all these promises that we don't yet experience, it just seems that the promises are true, but my experience is not experiencing them, which means there's a delay between the promise and the fulfillment of that promise. Over the years, I got very frustrated as a young Christian. When you're a young Christian, you just kind of want everything to happen right now. And you realize God doesn't seem to be in a hurry, which is very annoying. But the reality is his timing is perfect. And I think the delays are for a reason. It's amazing how much you learn during a delay. It's amazing how much your faith either grows or diminishes in delay, whether you feel like giving up or... Here's the deal, learning to persevere, we have toiled all night. Have you got it? Yeah. Sometimes it's like that as Christians. It's kind of like we've, we've toiled, we're tired, we're, we're waiting for the promise. When on earth is this going to happen? But God's doing something in our hearts and he's teaching us about faith and trusting him. If you're a member of Jubilee and you've been around for some time, you'll notice, and this is actually true of all local churches, much of church life is about keeping going, 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 believing that the promises of God will be You don't stop doing things just because there's a delay. Much of church life is about persevering. It's about keeping on praying. It's about keeping on evangelizing. 
In our church back at home, some of you would have heard of the Alpha Course, presenting Jesus to people. We've done two or three Alpha Courses every year for the last 25 years without stopping. And some of them have been very successful, and some of them have been very, very, very unsuccessful. And we say, guys, let's do another Alpha Course this September. And I can just feel the Alpha team going... Here we're going back out to the deep. The same thing. Another alpha course. Do they really think we're going to get more people along than the last time? Have we got different tools? No, the same ones. Have we got a new super net? No. The same old net you had last time. Just wash them and clean them. Have we got a new message? No, it's the same message. And this is the deal when it comes to the delays. Actually, there's nothing new and fancy about anything. It's the same old thing. It's the same words of the gospel. It's the same way of reaching people and building relationship. And Jubilee Church is a church that's over the years and will continue to do this. We'll keep on going back to the same place with the same things, week by week, faithfully believing God that there will come a moment when God will come and make a massive breakthrough. My own church back at home in London, we're like this and, and... very much like this and we felt God speaking to us and saying saying something like this you know if there was a big catch would the fish slip through the nets would the boats actually sink in other words when there's a delay sometimes it's not bad because you're getting yourself ready Jubilee Church if God's going to give you a massive catch a huge harvest we're talking hundreds and thousands of people coming to Christ. And even as I say that, there's a whole load of you thinking, mm, I'm not sure I can. It's a big catch. That's the promise, a big catch. And if that's to happen, I wonder, would we be overwhelmed? I mean, God's been speaking to us about our heart attitude. And um, what kind of people, what kind of fish? Maybe they're not going to be like us. Maybe they're going to look different. Maybe they're going to be different. Maybe they're going to come in with a load of baggage and mess and not know where to sit on a Sunday morning. Maybe it's going to be very inconvenient and time-consuming for us. Are we ready to handle this catch? I mean, the delay is a good moment to have a kind of considering moment. Churches need to get themselves ready. We actually should be doing everything we can not to maintain what we've got. But because there's an expectation that something massively different is about to happen, we're discipling one another so we all get ready for that. I know a guy, um, a pastor, who felt God called him to plant a church in an area of Auckland in New Zealand. And this particular area of the, the capital city of Auckland was renowned for being hard to the gospel. People have been there, tried to plant churches, it hadn't worked, and then God spoke to him and said, I want you and your family to move down. They said, Lord, really, do I have to go there? He said, <laughs> the Lord said, yes, you do. It's going to be fine. Many, many promises. For two years, he and his family and 10, 15, max 20 other people joined them for two years, praying. He said, I, he said, I did everything I knew to make this church plant grow. He said, I fasted over it, prayed over it, poured oil with it, walked round it seven times. I just did everything I could to make it grow and nothing would happen. And one day, an alcoholic lady, renowned in the area, rocked up to one of those meetings. And they loved her and they cared for her. 
and they tried to help her through her life. He said to me it was absolutely painful. She'd just get to the point where she'd understand something about Jesus and then back off. She'd just get to the point where she wanted to get baptized in water and failed to turn up at the meeting. She'd walk past the pub and then would go in and get drunk again. The journey went on and on and on as they frustratingly tried to care for this lady. And then one day, it just happened. She broke through. The addiction left her. She didn't drink alcohol anymore. She came right through. She got baptized in water. My friend said, Lord, what was all that about? And the Lord said, I wanted to see how you'd care for one. Because what happened is this lady then brought a whole load of other alcoholics because Jesus had changed her life. And, and he said, God said, I wanted to see with you, and now I'm going to give you a load more. That church is now over a 1,000 people. And yet those early days were important for God was getting them ready. He's getting, they were mending their nets for the great catch that God would give to them. I don't know. Maybe we need to change a little bit. Maybe we can be a bit more inclusive and diverse. Maybe our nets do need washing. Our wineskins need to be corrected. But faith is massive. The next two points will be much quicker, so you're all right. So that's faith. The second one is action. I will let down the nets. Going out to the deep, faith requires action always. Your faith Jesus often said, has made you well. I think he loved the guys who let their friend down through the roof. You know that story? They couldn't get into the building, so they went through the top. I just get the sense that Jesus loved action. So here's my second point. Faith must always result in action. That's what you see in this passage. There's faith there because you said so, but they still had to put down their nets. Has it ever occurred to you how... How amazing it would be if they rode out into the deep and, 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 and they landed in the right place. And then miraculously, Jesus from afar pointed his finger and the nets all came out over the side and went down on their own. Why did they have to lay down, let down the nets? Why couldn't Jesus do that? The answer is because somehow in the sovereignty of God, he wants us to partner with him. It's through ordinary people that he manifests his glory. And so here we see in this passage of scripture... Again, Jesus, you know, the woman touches him in the crowd. Who touched me? What he loved about that is someone reached out in action. They let him down through the roof. She tried to touch him. They put down their nets. Faith must surely always result in action. The book of Hebrews, chapter 11, is a full of men and women, very much like you and me, but they're in Scripture because they had the same promises that we do, but they didn't just have the promises by faith. They moved out on them. So if you read through that chapter, you'll see faith, action, faith, action. By faith, they did this. By faith, they did this. By faith, they did that. So for example, it says, by faith, Noah built an ark. Because the promise was the storm's going to come and the rain's going to come. You better get ready. So build an ark. It does not say, and verily, an ark came out of heaven. He built the ark. Abraham, when called by God, went. The people of Israel, when they were 
confronted by the Red Sea. Why were they there? Well, because the promise was the promised land. And they had to possess the land by faith, and then they're confronted by a sea. And Moses lifts up his staff, and the sea is parted. But you know, this isn't Star Trek. So they didn't transport themselves from one side of the sea to the other. Do you have Star Trek in this country? You're looking at me very blatantly. I don't think it was English and transported here. I think it was the other way around. Anyway, so... And so even then, with these walls, it says, up to heaven of these seas, you had to walk. Now, at this point, being English is really, really helpful because English people are very polite. So if I'd been there confronted by this phenomenon, I'd have been saying, as English people do, after you, please, after you. Would you like to go in front of me? And then I'd have been watching very carefully how the people walking through the water, whoa, they're a quarter, and they're still doing okay. Maybe, just maybe, then my faith would have risen. I thought, right, I'm going to follow too. They walked across by faith. And the next verse says, and the Egyptians, when they tried it, they were all drowned. Because it's a faith issue. And the Egyptians didn't have faith like the people of God did. But the faith produced action. Jericho walls came down because people walked around seven times. Faith always produces action. Are you someone today that believes a promise from God and you've got faith in it, but it's not happening simply because you're passive? It's time to do something. It's time to step out the boat. It's time to go on a limb. It's time to go out and trust the faithful God that he will come through. I find often promises become a reality as I move forward towards them. Jubilee Church. I don't know all the promises God's given you, the vision, the dreams, the expectations that you've got as a company of people, how vast it is or how big it is, and you know you're not there yet, and you might feel a bit disappointed. When's it going to happen? Keep walking. Keep moving. Keep praying. Keep trusting. Thirdly and finally, so it's faith, it's action. The third thing is this. We serve a God of supernatural breakthrough. This is all about the miracle. This is all about when the nets are put down, a miracle happens despite everything they had thought. The nets are full because it's a great catch. And all through the book of Acts, the word suddenly appears more than any other book in the Bible. And the good news for you and I is this. We're still living in the age of the Spirit, in the age of the book of Acts. Nothing's changed. So they saw suddenly there was a wind from heaven. Suddenly Peter's released from prison. Suddenly they're praying and God said to them, I'm expecting suddenness today. We're living in the same age of a God who can break through suddenly. And this is where I want to land, finish. My challenge to myself is I'm living in a Western Christianity that fundamentally doesn't have a lot of room for something extraordinarily different from what I experienced. Does that make sense? I've become used to church life like this. I don't really expect something extraordinarily different. It's sad, but that's the case. Some of us are tired. We've been toiling all night. We've been evangelizing and praying. We still haven't seen a great harvest. We still haven't seen the multitudes coming to Christ. And some of us would even say, well, you know, church is better than it used to be. And we do get a couple of fish plop in from time to time. 
And that's it. And I'm just as guilty as anybody. I'm kind of happy when there's four people coming to Jesus. Because that's my experience. That's what I'm used to. That's the world that I live in. And when I read passages of scripture like this, the challenge to me is, I worship and serve a God, a great God, who can do miraculous things. In fact, the whole point of this passage, he does what we cannot do. We are not able to work this miracle. We cannot do this thing. And Christianity in the West needs to wake up and understand that God can say, go out and fish again, and it's going to be different the next time. Because God has the power to do this. I have four children, and when they were growing up, you know, seven, eight, nine, actually younger than that, Liz and I would love to read them bedtime stories. They'd love to do it and to hear us. And last thing they heard was us doing the bedtime stories. And I used to do all the bedtime stories with them, and it's very sweet and everything. But I was a bit weird as a father because what I used to do is to slip in from time to time stories of revival. Now, that's a bit weird when you're just going to sleep, isn't it? As an eight-year-old, and you're hearing all about the Welsh revival. (coughs) Excuse me. But the reason I did it was this. I wanted my children to grow up knowing this experience we're having right now of Christianity is not the end. It's not the norm. (coughs) Because I don't want them to think this is the... I wanted them to know that when revival breaks out, And revival is when God sovereignly moves and there's transformation. The church gets awakened, but the whole of society gets affected and multitudes come to Christ. I wanted them to know that there's been times in history in my nation where, although they are the only Christian in their class, there were times when the whole class and the whole school and all the teachers were born again. And that those days can happen again. The sobering thing for us is this, that in China, and I've had the privilege of spending much time with Chinese pastors, in China, conservative estimate, 10,000 people are coming to Christ every single day. The biggest revival that's ever happened on this planet is happening today, 2017. That's quite a big catch don't you think? One of the pastors said we're a bit worried because actually as we look at the statistics, we feel that the 10,000 is just kind of dropping a little bit. And I want to say, oh, you poor thing. That must be so sad. How can you live with this? Only 9,000 on Tuesday? (laughs) What kind of world is this? How embarrassing for me with my little flish, flish, fish. It's been a long day. Fish plopping in. I'd like to invite all the Chinese to come over here and tell us stories of what's going on in their lives. It's probably not going to happen. But the reality is, I think God wants to do that here. Do you think God can do that? And It's a huge challenge. Don't just say yes, because it's a huge It's foreign. We're kind of like the disciples. Okay, another Alpha course, let's go for it. But when God speaks and a miracle happens, it can transform. I live in, in the continent of Europe. Actually, we've just left. 
But the gospel hasn't left. And we haven't left. The statistics are terrible. Belgium, 0.08% people believe they're born again Christians. I mean, it, when you think about stats like that, it's just it's millions of people outside of Christ. That's repeated everywhere. It's terrible. 500 years ago, Martin Luther got revelation about the gospel and a fire spread so far throughout Europe, even it's made you be what you are today, whether you know it or not. God can do it again. We need God to do it again. The United States, it's a good country. You need a revival. It's nothing going to change. And you, and you know what? We just... We're just closeted by church going. There are multitudes of unchurched people. And there's a millennial generation that isn't even going to church anyway. I'm so excited by this. Because they're just ripe for the gospel to come in.